Welcome to my podcast, Two Whiskies and a Cigar. I'm your host, Frankie Sabini. This podcast's sole purpose is to bring you knowledge, motivation and help within your chosen industry or sport. I'll be sitting down each week to talk to people who have either achieved a high level of success in business or sport and individuals who have amazing skills and experiences that the world needs to hear. My aim is to help as many people as I can by gaining insights from industry leaders and athletes. So please, pour yourself a whiskey, light a cigar, sit back and enjoy. Today we have Richard Keynes. Richard is one of the most hard-working and dedicated people I have ever had the pleasure of working alongside. Rich started his construction career at the bottom and worked his way up to end up working with some of the biggest names within the industry. Now, he is commercial director of Stratstone, uh, Stratstone Projects and managing multi-million pound sites. Rich, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Frankie. Good to be here. That's right, mate. I, uh, we obviously recorded this once before and unfortunately you were supposed to drop on day one and, and the file got corrupt so it, the, the the gold that was uh on that podcast is is lost to the world unfortunately but we've got the memories which is the, you know, the main thing this one should hopefully go better as well so hopefully well yeah we'll second, second take and all that that's it um so for obviously everyone who don't know how did you start in the construction industry and, and what was your journey um so I kind of left school, um, as I think a lot of guys do, um, our age and, you know, um, younger, not really knowing what I wanted to do. Um, I think it's always the toss up, isn't it? Between you hear, I'll become a plumber, they're on X amount a year or join the army or, you know, my mate's got a job down the road. I actually ended up going to work in a, in a butcher's, a local butcher's, um, whilst I was deciding what I wanted to do with myself. Um, and funnily enough, um, went to a college open day to actually sign up for a plumbing course. Um, but the queue was around the block um, and there was a construction management booth with not a lot of uh, fanfare. So I ended up chatting to a guy who was a, uh, a QS uh, before he'd become a lecturer. Um, and he basically said to me, um, you can spend the next 30 years on your knees. Um, I didn't know what he meant by that. Really, but, um, <laughs> Uh, but I spent five minutes on my knees and got on the course. No, um, <laughs> no, uh, ended up signing up on the construction management side of things um, and really went from there. Um, I started at a small asbestos removal company as a construction buyer, learned a lot there. Um, ended up working on a project that went into uh, arbitration, um, into, into a legal dispute basically, where the company we were kind of butting heads with, ended up offering me a job after a, a couple of days um, grilling them on, on, the, uh, on the arbitration side of things. So um, ended up going and working with Skanska um, in the city for a number of years, um, did my apprenticeship with them um, and then uh, got, got contacted about a, a project that was kicking off in Amsterdam um, with Mace International. Um, it was their first actual construction projects outside of the UK that they were delivering themselves rather than working as a, um, a consultant. Um, so yeah, 2014 ended up moving to, to Amsterdam, lived there for a couple of years um, and then kind of ventures took me over to Denmark for 18 months um, and then ended back up in the UK uh, 2018 
um, was doing a bit of consulting and then eventually uh, kind of went full time with the Stratstone group, um, Stratstone Projects, which is um, the company that I'm kind of uh, mainly looking after at the moment. Um, obviously with Will Lene heading up the group, um, as you know. So yeah, bit of a bit of a mixed bag really. Um, never really saw myself going into construction, but kind of as soon as got into the environment, realised it was kind of the best place for me. Um, I think you get kind of the best of all worlds, whether it be you know um, changing environments, the ability to travel, um, and working with the widest range of people imaginable, you know. Um, you'll go from speaking to a property developer or, you know, um, someone who's, you know, running a company to half hour later speaking to the guys who are actually delivering the works. And I think that's probably what has drawn me and kept me in the industry for so long is that kind of wide range of personalities and backgrounds. Um, I myself kind of working class um, and construction's kind of been a vehicle that's allowed me to get into rooms and speak to people that traditionally I don't think I'd be speaking to. So um, I've got a lot to say for the construction industry. I think it's a great uh, opportunity for people um, who aren't necessarily set on a, a profession or, you, you know, um, a way forward in life. Um, and I think there's a lot more to be said for it than just the general impressions, which is kind of, you know, um, builder's bum and dirty boots and, you know, um, dust and muck and all the rest of it. There's, there's, there's so much potential to kind of see the world with construction, um, and meet a lot of very interesting people. So yeah, that's, that's really my background in a nutshell. Um, mainly commercial, obviously, mm. but, um, last few years, obviously getting a lot more involved in project management. Um, and how are you finding that? It's, yeah, it comes with its own challenges. Um, so what's, what's, for people who don't know, or people looking to start, to get into construction, don't mm. know what route, what's the difference between sort of the commercial side and the project management side? So, um, myself, so my training was as a quantity surveyor. Um, so that is really, uh, working on a project, whether, um, estimating, so, the commercial side, let's say QSs, buyers, um, procurement, estimators, they're really focused on the commercial success of the project. Um, so a QS will uh, be on a project, they'll be responsible for making sure that the company they're working for is effectively making a profit for the works they're delivering. Um, that varies from what kind of stage you're at um, and what kind of company you're working for. Obviously, Stratstone Projects is a main contractor. Um, so we over we over overlook the entirety of the project. A client um, or an individual will say, "I want this building built. I want a block of flats built." Um, we take that on. We carve it up into all different types of trades and packages. You know, the steel frame, the envelope, the roof, the interiors. Um, we go out, source subcontractors who are specialists. They deliver the kind of different um, packages and trades, um, and hopefully, all going well. Um, we take a little bit of profit on each one of those trades and kind of pull it all together and hand the building back to a happy client. Um, the QS is fundamentally just focused on how how can I improve my margins and how can I make sure that we're not you know losing money hand over fist. Whereas the the project management side of life is more in terms of the actual deliverables on the job. So 
Um, is the site safe? Is it secure? Um, is it well organised? The logistics of getting materials and men into the building, um, and you know the quality and the you know the delivery on time of the works. Um, so you tend to find there's always a clash between the commercial and the project management side. Um, the QS wants to do it as cheaply and as quickly as possible, whereas the project manager wants to do it right and, and one time only, doesn't want to go back and do it again, um, and wants to make sure everyone's doing it safely. Mm. Um, unfortunately, I've worked for, with a few commercial guys in the past who, when you mention health and safety, they say pick one because you, you know we're only paying for one, um, health or safety, what's your poison? Um, but yeah, so uh, it's been, I, I have a lot of internal battles, you know, on a few projects I deliver both roles and um, it's quite hard to argue with yourself, although I do find a way. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's kind of, it's a balancing act between um, getting the job done when you need it done, making money on it and obviously everyone doing it in a, in a safe way. So. So you, you sort of glazed over the fact that you worked internationally mm. earlier. Not yep. many people I know within the industry has had a chance to work internationally. So mm. how did you carve them opportunities out? I was, I was quite fortunate, really. Um, I know they say you kind of make your own luck and that, but I've been quite fortunate in my uh, career that I've worked with a lot of good people um, and had uh, kind of once-in-a-lifetime opportunities come my way. Um, I hope to think or like to think that is partially down to myself, but um, really the Amsterdam opportunity come up um, off the back of, as I said, I was working for Skanska in the city uh, in London at the time. Um, I was doing a, a, a big commercial project. Um, I think that was about 150 million, uh, the scheme that we were working on there. How old did you then? Um, I would have been 20, I would have been 20 when I left Skanska and went to um, Mace. So I was, I always, um, whether rightly or not, saw myself at an advanced position. Um, I got to grips with the commercial side of things quite quickly, I found. I felt, found my personality suited it quite well. Um, I've always loved arguing semantics um, and arguing details um, and uh, never liked to be wrong. So again, that suited me quite well. Um, and I think kind of from my background and upbringing and kind of um, from my mum and dad, I've always, I've never really shied away from um, confrontation if I feel I'm right. Um, so I think that's kind of surprised. Uh, I think obviously trainees and apprentices and assistants, you, you don't usually expect them to um, kind of argue and, and kind of bite back. But again, my background kind of lent towards me being like, well, if you're all, you know, if you're there and, you, and you're willing to have the argument and you, you can substantiate what you're arguing, then I, I never really cared who I was arguing against if I knew or felt I was right. So um, I kind of pushed myself on a little bit further than I think uh, I could have expected at that age, um, and that obviously caught the attention of um, the, the the people who were putting together this uh, team to go overseas. Um, uh, the, the construction industry, everyone knows everyone, it is a very small world. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the, the team I was working with at the time, kind of senior commercial lead I was working for, happened to uh, be a drinking buddy with, with someone who was, who was at Mace and they got to talking. 
he obviously shared how wonderful his, his uh, assistant QS was and um, the, the guy didn't hang around. I think a couple of days later, I met him in Moorgate for a beer and two weeks after that, I was, I was on a plane over to Amsterdam. So it was all quite quick and um, it was funny at the time, no one believed that I was actually going over there for a kind of full-time role. It all seemed a bit dodgy for uh, yeah, the so uninitiated. Yeah. <laughs> I remember my mum going, are you sure it's actually a real job offer? It's not a scam. And I said, well, thanks for the confidence boost, mum. But yeah, no, actually, uh, they do want me over there. Um, yeah, so um, it was kind of short and sharp. Um, but yeah, October 2014, I think it was, I moved over. I'm going to turn up at the... Um, central station in Amsterdam with a suitcase. Um, prior to that, kind of like a, a week before, I flew out there for a couple of days, went and looked at some apartments, picked one, uh, not really thinking. Again, it was a bit of a whirlwind. Um, and a week later, I was out there, kind of moved in um, and, uh, yeah, looking for, a, looking for a bicycle, as, as everyone in Holland, <laughs> you know. Um, the calf. It's the only way to get about. Yeah, the, the calf... Um, yeah, didn't help too much with the uh, number crunching, to be honest. But um, yeah, it's certainly a way of life out there. Um, really enjoyed my time out there. I've got a lot of time for, um, I always say, like, Holland's my second home now. Mm. Um, love the Dutch. I think they've got a great kind of outlook on life. Um, Why? I've, I, they're very much, they seem to be, um, as long as you're not hurting anyone else, you can do what you want. Um Good you know, as long as it isn't detrimental to, to anyone else or um, you aren't pissing anyone else off, they'll let bygones be bygones. Um, I'd, I'd, again, obviously where we've grew up in the UK is that kind of culture and, you know, what we've grown up in is kind of is what feels the norm. But you kind of go outside of that and you, and you do realise we are quite nosy. Do you know what I mean? The British are quite nosy when it comes to it. You're always wondering what your neighbour's doing. You're always looking over the garden fence and some are worse than others. But um, yeah, certainly in Amsterdam, anyway, I can't speak for the whole of the Netherlands, but certainly from um, where I worked and where I lived, um, they were the easiest going people I've ever kind of come across. I loved it. Um, and you get so many eccentrics in Amsterdam, I find, as well. It kind of attracts the world's Nutcase is probably half the reason I ended up there. But um, <laughs> is it like so? You're kind of painting a little picture, obviously attracting a uh, eccentrics and that. Is it a little bit sort of like Shoreditch? Yeah, a lot is, more weed? yeah, yeah, a lot more, a lot more recreational drugs, um, <laughs> a lot more mushrooms. Um, but um, it's that kind of it. It's obviously you go into the centre, you go into the kind of touristy bits, and that's the the, the vibe you get. Um, but I mean, Amsterdam itself is all on top of each other. I think you can kind of walk from one side of the city to the other in about 40 minutes. It's not, mm. it's not a huge place. I think it's about a million people or so. But um, there's so much variety. Like once Again, once you kind of get out of those um, touristy hubs, you can just kind of lose yourself amongst the restaurants and bars that they've got there. You know, I think... Mm. I've, I can't remember, but off the top of my head, I think they've got about the same amount of restaurants as London has, but it's obviously a fraction of the size. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's just, uh, hot, there's a lot of positivity there. Um, there's, yeah, a lot of, they, they love a bank holiday. I always remember, I think it's King's Day, they call it, which is kind of their big bank holiday, but you cannot, you could not get down any street in Amsterdam. Everyone's wearing orange. The, the the canals are full up of boats. Everyone's just drinking on the street. And again, you think that 
you think of like, I, I suppose the closest comparison you could make to the UK is probably like Notting Hill Carnival. Um, hmm. And again, that's a kind of great day out, but it, it always, you always hear like X amount of arrests and all the rest of it. My entire time in Amsterdam, I don't ever remember seeing anyone get arrested or mm. any trouble kick off, no fights. Again, that's probably something to do with the coffee shops, to be honest. <laughs> um, but I just loved it. There. Yeah, I just loved it. You know, as a 21-year-old, um, uh, I would say man, but I feel like I'm, I feel like I was a boy now at that kind of age. But yeah, at 21 years old, it felt like the kind of world was my oyster. I was, I was, I was lucky. I was very lucky. So yeah. So why did you move? You went to Denmark after that, didn't you? That was it. Yeah. So. Um, I was obviously working um, on data centers, which is kind of, um, they're basically what facilitate all the online cloud storage and basically online services that everyone's um, on nowadays. Um, so there was a big demand um, at the time to ramp up um, supply effectively. There, there was so much data, um, but not enough places to store it. Um, so there was a big, big push by, um, a few of the big global tech companies effectively to rather than leasing it off um, third parties why not spend the money and build our own um, the idea being is well the idea I, I, I believe or is led to believe is the technology will forever get smaller um, so they built the facilities massive I mean in terms of the kind of structures we were building 100,000 square mil, um, 100,000 square meter kind of warehouses effectively um, yeah, massive, um, and not one, but kind of seven. You know, the the schemes were um, kind of decade long schemes, um, and basically um, uh, loved Amsterdam, but got a uh, an opportunity to kind of progress in my career, um, take on a kind of more senior commercial role. Again, I would have been, I think I was twenty three, twenty four. So again, it was a big jump. Mm. Um, a kind of a few. Um, few people kind of rolled their eyes again you know um, unfortunately construction is one of those where it's kind of age is is a big um, predictor of kind of how far you can go in your career Um, whereas I've always kind of the 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 attitude I've always approached things with is if you're competent enough and and again you've got a decent degree of experience then I, I don't really think age plays too much into it um, but yeah, went to Denmark for kind of a more senior role. Worked in a in a place called Odense, which is kind of their third biggest city. Again, puts things into perspective. It's their third biggest city, and there's only 140,000 people living there. So that was a that was a shock going from like London um, to Amsterdam to then a city like that. Again, it was a lovely place, but after nine o'clock of the night, it was kind of a ghost town. Mm, really especially weird. when yeah. you what, 22, 23? Uh, yeah, 23 kind of thing. Yeah, so, you always sort of go and have a drink yeah, after work. Yeah, and it's, that's where, you know, um, you, you do you get some wisdom, don't you as, you, as you get a bit older. And part of me did think at the time, why have I gone, you, you know, you're going from Amsterdam to, uh, like I said, Odense, and it was a bit of a reality shock. Mm. Um, but still love my time out there. It was a completely different experience that, again, um, I don't think I'd probably choose to live in Denmark. It weren't weren't for me. Um, big culture difference to the Dutch. It felt like again, it's only forty minutes on a plane, but it's a kind of huge, huge um, culture difference. Um, but um, yeah, enjoyed my time there. Um, but it got to a point where the work-life balance kind of kicked in, and I thought I I want to get back to the UK. Um, kind of want to. 
you find, especially working away um, on those kind of big construction projects, you end up becoming, you, you naturally become friends with who you work with anyway. But where you've got, where there was a big uh, Irish contingent, big English contingent um, of uh, like the construction professionals who are over there, and you end up just becoming drinking buddies with the people you work with, and you you are you're kind of working with these guys, and then you're out with these guys, and then on the weekend you're either by yourself or you're with the guys again. Mm. So not that it was a problem. All, all the people I worked with were lovely, but I did think you know um predominantly again a lot of the a lot of the guys were forties fifties. Um, so I felt like I was probably aging well beyond my years a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I thought, you know what, I, I fancy a change up and yeah, decided to come back to the UK. So, so what's the biggest differences between sort of like working in like London market, UK market to Amsterdam to Denmark? Right. Uh, um, so I, 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 the scale of the projects obviously influences the, the, the way I work in the lot. Um, I think in Amsterdam, um, at its peak, we had two and a half thousand guys on site a day. Um, yeah. which means obviously the the amount of pre-planning goes into it is, is almost as important as delivery once you're on site mm. um, so we would spend absolute months going through um, kind of logistics and um, functionality just of, of things that you wouldn't normally consider in a in a in a construction project you know um, footpaths you know setting out of footpaths what's the uh, quickest way to the uh, to the site. I mean, it would take fifteen minutes to walk from the site cabins to the actual workface. That's get lost. Yeah, exactly. You know, we had um, John Deere's. You know, like the little golf buggies. We had to. Mm. We, in the end, again, we we did a we looked at the cost of buying them compared to the lost time of the guys walking back for their smoke breaks, mm. and it made more sense to spend a hundred grand on on golf buggies than it did to allow the guys to keep walking back and forth, back and forth. Um, <clears throat> 15 minutes lost doesn't seem like a lot, but you times that by two and a half thousand and you're talking work weeks for yeah. several hundred people just gone um, if you're not controlling it. So I learned a lot in terms of um, planning and, um, and pre-planning, really putting the effort into um, uh, building you know, management plans before you're on the job. Um, it kind of focuses everyone to a set way of working. I mean, it's good practice and they say you should do it across the board anyway, but the reality is you don't always have the time, money and resource to do that on smaller projects. But what I have, have learned there, I've tried to translate into the jobs we're doing now um, uh, for Stratstone, but um, the London market's a lot more aggressive. Um, it's a lot more competitive. Um, there is always someone willing to step into your shoes, I find, in London. Um, whether that be at a main contractor position or a subcontractor position, there is always someone who can fulfill that duty. Um, so I find it is the market is a lot more competitive. Mm. You have to not only you can't price can't be your only um, point of you know uh, success. Mm. You need to bring a lot more to the table, which again that can take the form of either you know the the quality or or program whatever it may be. Um, in international delivery, again, a lot of people get a lot of people can't put their throw their hat into the ring because of the the kind of the scale of the construction. That I mean, the values 
I was managing package values um, that exceed anything that I would have worked on in the UK as an yeah. overall development price. You know, um, as I say, you know, 100,000 square meters of cladding or roofing, you're talking 40 million euros on, on one package. Yeah. You know, one scheme is half a billion euros. Um, so it what it was good at, it didn't make me scared of value. Um, sometimes, you know, um, it can be quite difficult to make decisions because of the money involved and potentially the risk associated with it. Mm. Quite quickly, I learned, you know, um, again, if you've got a strategy and you've got conviction in what you're trying to achieve, um, the, the value is the, the the value isn't the important bit. Getting the basic fundamentals right is. So, have you always been organised person? Because obviously, again, <clears throat> you kind of not gloss over it, but you kind of make it sound like it was a breeze to, for you to be able to get into these different sort of areas and and jobs but you must have had something what other people don't have to be able to get in there like was it your your work ethic was it your you was really very um organized person yeah, so, uh, i mean i or you just like to have a rack uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's probably probably the latter now i've i found at school um i've always i i, I has how do i put it um in the subjects i liked i excelled but I was very lazy and procrastinated a lot with stuff that I knew was important but didn't necessarily want to do. You know, um, it's funny. Obviously, I trained as a QS, but I never liked maths at school. Um, I remember a school teacher saying to me the best I could hope for um, was putting boxes together, and that was on a parents' evening. And I thought, oh, cheers, mate. You know, like <laughs> um, hype my mum and dad up. But um, no, I, I feel like I've always. Uh, I think OCD gets thrown around a lot nowadays, doesn't it? But um, I've always been, yeah, I'd probably say I've been quite organised. I've always kind of kept my space, whether it's a bedroom or whatever, kind of neat and tidy. And um, I like I like controlling my environment, I'd say, is probably a, a way of saying it. Mm. Um, and again, um, I think that kind of lean, leans towards kind of commercial management, it, which is you want to know exactly what's in every little pot and that everything is kind of where it should be and you you know what margins you've got and not leaving anything to um, chance. Um, so probably some of that has helped me in, in, in what I've done as a career. Um, and I think the other side of it is, I, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily a hard worker. Um, I know a lot of hard workers, we work with a lot of hard workers. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a hard worker. Um, I can't remember. It's like the Bill Gates thing, isn't it? If you want a job done quickly, give it to a lazy person, and that's what I feel like I've, I'm inclined to do sometimes. Um, I will. I'm a. Unfortunately, I am a bit of a procrastinator, but it does lean or lead me towards doing kind of some of my best work. If I know I've got two weeks to do something, I usually end up doing it in the last two days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And that's not me sitting on my hands for the other uh, other part of the two weeks, but it's probably I'm letting everything stack up, so everything is always in the last two days. But um, it's it's done me okay so far, I think. Um, it is something I've tried to improve on myself because um, it can the the stress is something you thrive on when you're younger, and then as you start obviously getting a bit older, you go I could probably do with less of the. Mm. Um, immediate stress, give myself a bit of breathing space. Um, 
But yeah. So how how's the best way to manage stress then for you moving forward? I think I think you're probably asking the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I a good bit of advice I got was if it's not going to matter in a year, don't stress yourself over it. Um, and I think that is probably a good way of framing situations sometimes. Um, I think obviously in our industry, um, client expectations sometimes it can feel like the end of the world if something's gone wrong. Um, but if no one's died, no one's got hurt, um, the business hasn't gone belly up, um, and everyone's kind of able to put food on their family's tables at the end of the week, um, you shouldn't kind of beat yourself up too much. Um, you can start straying into uh, fixating over things, and you get into an unhealthy position where I've had it, um, where you're approaching kind of deadlines on jobs, and you'll find yourself waking up at all hours of the morning thinking about the most benign things. Mm. Oh, I should have called the lift engineer. I needed that looked at. Or, you know, uh, someone shut a window on site. And, and But I think that, I don't know whether that's the brain's way of kind of processing all the information um, that's kind of going through your head during the day and you get a bit of time of the night and that's when it kind of starts coming out. But, um, yeah, definitely I think you've got to, at the end of the day, you've got to prioritise your own health. Um, because, you know, you can have all the trappings of success, but if you're not there to kind of enjoy it or you're not in any kind of condition to enjoy it, then it kind of defeats the purpose. Mm. Um, so, and, I've, and I've, I have seen it, you know, I've seen guys that I've worked with um, end up burning themselves out um, because they're so passionate about their job and they, they, again, love what they do, but end up taking on, the entire project's woes or, you know, the client's stresses or the developer's stresses. And um, whilst that's what we're there to do, you know, you kind of got to have broad shoulders um, when you're delivering a project, especially on that main contractor side of things. Um, but you can't you can't beat yourself up too much. Um, in an ideal world, everything happens on time, everything goes perfectly. That's not reality. Um, and it's kind of, you know, it's like trying to fight the tide sometimes there are going to be bad days and mm. sometimes it's just better off going, do you know what, rather than sitting there and kind of pulling your hair out, it's better to close the laptop and go, do you know what, I'm going to write off today and I'll get back to it in the morning um, with a kind of positive, um, uh, more positive outlook on things. So There's obviously a, a big sort of uh, thing at the moment in for men's health, mm. but I, the, the suicide rate for men is obviously ridiculously higher than any other um, sex or, mm. or kind of, I sort of had to put it. Part but, of society, yeah, yeah. For sure, yeah. And then obviously, on a, like, more onto that, it's the men within construction, mm. I think, are the highest still out of everybody, or the death rate in construction. So what do you think that is? Is just, just people just taking on too much stress and not knowing how to handle it? Or is it is it we've got to try and change the whole construction industry and how, like the outlook I think, yeah, I, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, there's some, like, it's not just construction. I think you look at, like, the finance world as well. Mm. Um, a large part of it is people don't want to admit, not necessarily failure sometimes, but that they, they aren't coping with what they've got in front of them. Um, obviously, you know, everyone wants to be a success and everyone wants to, you know, be, a, let's say, an industry leader. You know, you want... You know, there's there's nice to have the accolades of, you know, 
so-and-so delivered this job or so-and-so made this much money for, on this project. And um, you don't necessarily want to turn around and go, I'm, I'm drowning a little bit here. Um, <clears throat> there is something to, you, you know, um, I am a little bit old school sometimes uh, in the way I look at things. I still think there's a lot to be said for the stiff upper lip and um, I think adversity sometimes is, is it gives you kind of meaning. Um, that doesn't mean your work's got to kind of take over your entire life, but, um, you know, people go, oh, the key to, you know, the key to life is happiness. And I think a large part of it is, but I think kind of um, direction and having a purpose is equally as important. Mm. Um, and sometimes you only, you, you'll look back, I've had jobs where, it's felt like I've been in the trenches and I dread, some days will dread going to work um, because everyone's at you, people want to get paid, uh, the job's running behind, the client isn't happy, the supply chain isn't happy, um, your team aren't happy, the fucking, sorry, sorry. Oh, um, the, the weather is rubbish, you know, um, you walk into, you know, a cold, dark, wet building site a more you know Tuesday morning in February and you go why am I actually here why did I why didn't I go for the arts uh, course at college kind of thing <laughs> um, but then I look back on those jobs now and realize the amount I kind of garnered from it the amount I learned from it mm. um, and I you know it's like uh, training, it's like physically, you know, like um, going to the gym or you know, training for a marathon or anything like that. You've got to put yourself to that upper limit to get those gains and to improve. Mm. Um, and you've kind of got to reach that breaking point. Not to, it's lifting weights, you don't want to tear, you don't want to tear muscle, but at the same time, you've got to tear a bit of muscle to get the growth and keep yeah. kind of. Um, improving so and I feel like that's similar on on the mental side of things as well um, if you're in your comfort zone you're not growing as a as a person um, and nothing worth doing in life I don't think is easy you know mm. um, so I, I, I think the, the ways that you can combat getting swallowed up and, and, and potentially in kind of a in a bad place mentally is you've got to surround yourself or you know, be fortunate, fortunate enough to have people around you who can see that you're starting to struggle um, and share that load. Um, not necessarily with your day-to-day -day stuff, but, you know, you can go for a beer after work, have that chat, blow off some steam um, and just be able to vent sometimes, you know. Mm. Um, people always go, oh, you know, you don't want to talk work after, after you've been at work all day. Well, sometimes there's... You need that. You need that ability just to let off some steam. Off, yeah. um, so, as somebody who has obviously, you've run sites, multiple people be up, like underneath you, mm. as in subcontractors and obviously employees underneath you. Mm. How do you recognise like that? How do you how do you, say one of the guys in the the site office he looks like he's struggling? Like, mm. is that an easy thing to recognise? And, and and as a as somebody who runs a site, like how do you make sure that the, the morale is always sort of up when it's you, yeah you've yeah, got a hard client or you've got a deadline what you're not going to hit? Do you know what I mean? I think it's um, so. I've always said in construction that 
the actual work itself is relatively easy. Um, it's the people that introduce the difficulties. As mm. with everything in life, it's, it's people's um, people are always the thing that either they don't turn in or they're late or you know things get missed or human error nat- naturally. Um, you'll notice people acting. That's the first thing. If you've got a guy who's um, comes in Monday to Friday and he's a lovely bloke and talking about the football when he gets in in the morning and join a cup of tea and blah, blah, blah. And you start to see that fade off a little bit and he's becoming a lot more insular, probably not talking as much, not not um, not having the back and forth on site and in the office. Um, I think you can, I think you can, again, it's about understanding the people you work with, um, which is, I always make a point of on our sites. I've never had, I've always had an issue with unearned authority. I've never walked onto a job and said, oh, I'm the director, I'm the project manager. I always think that's a role you've almost got to earn. Um, it's a title that's given out quite freely, I find, um, and not a lot of people are actually up to the task of, of doing it. Um, they're happy to take the accolades, they're happy to take the perks, um, but when things go wrong, they go missing, and they try and either point the finger at subcontractors or individuals or people within their own team. Um, and that's not what you're there to do. Unfortunately, when things go good, you get the you get the applause, but when things go bad, you've got to kind of be that shield for the rest of your team. Mm. Um, and I find if you do that and you're honest with it, you know, um, if one of you know if one of our guys does something exceptionally well, has an idea that either saves money or it speeds up the program or you know, um, means that people are working safer on site. Me taking the glory for that, it's not going to mean a lot to me. Um, but if, you know, that person, if, if they, if people turn around and go, do you know what, well done on that. You've done fantastic there. That can make someone's week mm. or month, you know. Um, people look back and go, oh, bloody hell, like that was, and, and people appreciate that. Um, the same, if something goes wrong, um, it's a little bit, you don't want to pin that on a trainee or someone who's only been doing it a couple of years or, you know, a site manager, you've got to kind of, you've got to shoulder that burden, but you do that a couple of times and it builds, it hopefully builds a bit of camaraderie and respect mm. and they know they can come. What you don't want is something goes wrong on site. They come and tell you, you shout at them for an hour, you make them feel like an idiot in front of people. Because the next time something goes wrong, they won't come to you. They mm. won't tell you. They'll try and bury it. They'll try and hide it. And then in a few months' time, when you're trying to hand over the job or finish, it becomes apparent that that error is there. And you've then mm. got to try and resolve or You've got to resolve it. You want people to come to you with issues and be honest with you. Um, if they have been lazy or they've just completely disregarded the information you've given them, that's grounds to say, look, hang on, you know, you've, you've messed up here. Um, but if people haven't done it before or there's a bit of an experience or they've just, again, human error, they've just genuinely made a mistake or there's an accident, it doesn't he- it doesn't achieve anything, you know, um, chewing someone out. So um, I think you've got, to, you've got to understand the teams that you've got working on site. Um, I kind of have a rule that everyone who comes on the site, they have to put their name on the back of their helmet um, because... That little thing 
one, it allows me to speak to everyone, and I'm terrible at remembering names. Um, but two, it also improves cross-communication between different companies and different contractors. Yeah. Because you might have a 30-second question, which will be, where are you running that pipeline? If you don't know the person's name, you're kind of reluctant to ask. You'll, people will be sheepish. Whereas if it says Dave on the back of the helmet, you go, sorry, Dave, where are you running that? And it suddenly opens up that communication. And that's one thing that I think we have got right and we do do right at Stratstone. And it's what people comment on when, you know, we would take prospective clients around or we walk the, the client for the projects around is we have a good, um, we have a good air of communication on site. Um, I've worked on jobs before where the electrician won't speak to the plumber yeah. or the dry liner won't speak to the decorator. Um, whereas we encourage people rather than coming to us to then go to the other person to come back to us. It's inefficient. It's, you know, I'm not doing it for the, it helps us. It cuts down on a lot of emails and pointless phone calls when they can speak to someone who stood on the other side of the room. Um, and again, you know, on the health and safety side of things, if you know someone's name, you're more inclined to look out for them, I mm. think, on site, um, because they become a person. They're not just a number. They're not just a body. They're not just someone who's there for a day. Yeah. That's someone that you know's got a family at home, or they got friends, or you know they've got a wife or a girlfriend um, waiting for them when they get back. Mm. So it, it, it humanizes people, um, and it takes you know you're not you are there to deliver a project, but at the same time everyone's there hopefully to make a bit of money and, and look after whatever their, their family is when they go home at the end of the day. And there's a sense of uh, like camaraderie as well. Yeah. So it's not like us against them. Yeah. We're plumbers, you're sparks. Yeah. We us for you, it's it's like let's all work together, let's get it done. Unfortunately things can get petty sometimes on site and it mm. is it's like, well I'm just here to do my job and unfortunately none of us get to go home until the job's finished. Um and trying to foster that environment where it's like Look, when we're done, when you're done, we're all done. And, um, and and trying to get that attitude across doesn't always work. You will, unfortunately, run into individuals who just want to do their own thing. They don't want to be helpful. They just, you know, I'm here to do this specific thing and, and mm. screw the rest of you. Um, but all you can do is just, as I said, keep chipping away. Um, and again, another thing, kill them with kindness, you know, um, there are some people who are, you know, they take, I'm sure you've met enough of them, take pleasure out of trying to make people's lives hard or trying to grind up the gears. Mm. Um, and what those types of people can't stand is positivity. And if they speak to you, um, let's say, in a not so nice way, totally disregarding that, not rising to it and going back, going, oh, yeah, no problem. Absolutely. How can I help? I will make sure that's out of your way for the end of the day. And they can't, there's, there's, there's no resistance to that. quite that barrier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it also, it can kind of make them a bit introspective sometimes. I've had it, you know, mm. but engineers who have been an absolute nightmare to deal with, but you keep on that positivity. No problem. I'll get that over to you. Is there anything else we can do? Blah, blah, blah. And by the end of it, they can't help but engage because, mm. you know, you're, you're giving them an open door. So... Uh, so I, it's very hard when you're in that situation to be positive to somebody don't want to be positive back. But I always think, what's made you that way? Mm. Like what what job have you been on to make you so unhelpful yeah. of everyone else? So I used to work with um, 
So do you know Kevin Mitchell, the the fought the world title three times. I just worked with his old man, and we used to go on site. And I weren't always with him. It was when we was doing a special stripping. And one thing he always used to say was, if we had a trade coming in after us, he's like, right, how can we make their job easier? But like we're doing our job, mm. but then what can we do to make their job easier? Like we can move something out of the way from. And I was like, Kev, I was like, don't worry, like, what are you worried about? I was obviously I was young back then. He was like, well, we're all here to do a job. We all want yeah. to make our money and go home and go get back to your missus and have a cup of tea, sit on the sofa and watch crap TV. And yeah. so, yeah. if I can try and get them back a bit earlier, it, went, it doesn't harm my day, mm. but it makes them get back to their comfort zone a little bit. And I thought, what a, like, a nice way of looking at well, things. Yeah, and I suppose that's a testament to his success in boxing. Well, it was, his, it? It was his dad. But yeah, but, but again, was, that's, yeah. That's, that's probably who's fostered that. Like, you don't... Uh, those types of people get on in life because that's their a- yeah. attitude. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I am a big believer. You can negativity fosters negativity, um, mm. and it's um, um, it's contagious sometimes. Um, and it's like cancer. Yeah, it, it spreads so the quickly. Yeah. Um, you're saying about morale on site, and if the person kind of sat at the top of the pile is oh fuck this, fuck that, another thing that's gone wrong, lost more money here. Again, that that grows, that that wears thin very quickly. Um, it's not resenting work. Yeah, and you just you just end up the team doesn't want to be there. Um, people don't want to come and speak to you, um, and everyone starts butting heads, and it becomes a um, like I'm out for myself and screw everyone else kind of thing. Um, One thing I would say, I, I I really think sort of good what you've got on site as well is, I've worked on sites before when I was younger. Um, and you never felt like you could walk into the site office mm. and ask a question, let alone have a laugh. Whereas being on site, seeing like within the office and mm. seeing people walk in and walk in having a laugh and taking the piss out of you or some of the other team members yeah, and then yeah. getting it back and having a laugh, like that's a testament to the 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 sort of morale and the attitude you've built there. Yeah. But then also you've got your board on the wall, what shows yeah. everything of what you're trying to achieve day in, week in, yeah. month in, positive quote of the day on there. Mm. So that's like, you're, you're just being transparent. Like. Yeah, and, and like, the thing is as well, um, I like getting to the source of things. Um, it, yeah, If I just only spoke to the supervisors and managers that subcontractors put on the job, I'm getting, look, people end up missing deadlines, people end up, you know, not delivering when they should, and if you some and again they've got to protect their position. That's unfortunately the market mm. and and the industry we work in. Um, I prefer going and speaking to the guys actually installing, um, because then you're going to get an honest answer because they've got nothing to hide. They haven't got a position to protect. They haven't got a narrative to spin. If I go and speak to a dryliner and say how many boards are you going to put up today, he's going to tell me because mm. he's got he's got no ulterior motive. Um, not saying that the guys who are managing him do, but let's be honest, you can't always be 100% honest when reporting up the line or down the line um, because it, it, people end up going, oh, well, I'm not going to come in tomorrow because it's not ready. Mm. Sometimes you have got to spin a bit of a yarn, um, whereas I, again, just in terms of having an open door in that site office, if there's health and safety issues on site or welfare issues on site, I'd rather that the guys who are actually there doing the work and who have got to use those facilities, whether it's the toilets or the changing rooms or, you know, somewhere where they can make a cup of tea and warm up their food, 
I want them to come and be able to feel comfortable enough to come and talk to me and I'm not going to tell them to fuck off or phone up their manager and say, I want him off the job because he's causing issues. Mm. Um, what's benefited me is that I don't see myself as any better than the guy who's labouring, tidying up the toilets at the end of the day on, on any of our jobs because my background is I could have well been doing that job if things had gone different ways or, like I said, if, um, if things had turned out differently. And a lot of my social circle, they are tradesmen. They work on those same sites. We'll go down the pub of the weekend and they'll tell me some atrocious stories where they're treated like animals. Mm. Um, there's one toilet for 20 guys or the microwave hasn't been cleaned out in a year or there's nowhere for them to make themselves a cup of tea, or they're told to eat in their van. That's not how I'd expect to be treated. Uh, and I don't think anyone should be treated. You, you know, they're, they're delivering. Without them, we couldn't do what we do. Mm. Um, and that kind of mutual respect, again, it, it, it fosters. If, if you take people's concerns on board and actually action them, you'll find that they'll treat the site and welfare better. Because if they walk in and it's a portaloo that 20 guys are using, it's never cleaned, it's nowhere to wash their hands, nowhere for them to make a, a hot drink, nowhere for them to warm up their food, they'll think, well, why would I go out of my way to make this site any better for anyone else? Why would I tidy up after myself? Why would I leave it clean? Or why would I leave it as I found it? Um, so by just doing little things like that, you can breed, like I said, a, a bit of a culture of, well, they're, you know, we've had issues and they've sorted them out for us. I will now make sure that I'm not making issues for other people on the job. And um, unfortunately, again, <clears throat> people kind of rise up the ranks and they forget kind of where they've come from um, or what it's like to do those jobs. My first job was, a, like I said, a butcher's boy. I remember getting up at half five in the morning and going working in freezers cleaning out freezers with god knows what in them um and you know you don't forget that very mm. easily and that's that will always kind of stick in my mind whenever i think you know when when i plan a job or when we plan jobs i you kind of got to start from that ground up position if you're the man at the coal face doing that work how would you go about doing it and mm. and sometimes um again the kind of professional side of it or the construction professionals they start at what makes sense in terms of looking at a drawing not necessarily what makes sense when you're on site physically doing the work um so you, I, I am a big believer in that i think if you kind of if you empower people to come to you with issues um they will solve issues themselves um on site and also try and help you achieve what you're trying to do big picture You've got to kind of start at that micro and then mm. worry about the macro is obviously very important. But you, if you don't get the micro right, it's it's never gonna never gonna work. Micro is right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, <clears throat> have you seen a big change in the industry since obviously COVID, like pre and post? Yeah, I think they. I think certainly um, their COVID has kind of driven um, labour prices sky high. Um, I think obviously when I start when I started in the industry it was in the it was within the last recession the 2008 crash I started 
I think 2010 uh, was when I um, started my first job in construction. Um, so it was all the, the pricing and values in jobs was kind of non-existent then. Um, we kind of going away and working abroad, um, I kind of shook that off a little bit and, and, and the values and, and rates and whatnot seemed a bit more healthy and, uh, and achievable. But certainly um, kind of 2020 onwards, a lot of the guys didn't have an option but to go work domestically. Um, which lends to higher rates naturally, um, but it's been and continues to be a struggle. Um, a lot of people have got the mindset and mentality of still working on those domestic jobs. They can stretch them out, um, and you know it's it's a hard sell saying you can go work around someone's house eight till four, charge X amount a day to then you're back on a commercial site, it's seven till six, um, and you've got a hard deadline that you've got to kind of commit to. Mm. Um, so some of the, I, th I think some of the appetite is, is still missing. Um, I think that will change now we're going into a new recession and, and rates are gonna start dropping off. I think some of that hunger will return. Um, but, it's 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 been hard again trying to program during covid just trying to secure materials was a was a, a task in itself um nothing i've certainly ever encountered certainly um some of the new guys that we've brought into the business that's they they, they just weren't um set up for it really um mm. what do you mean just in terms of you know unfortunately you know best plan in the world you're always going to need some materials next day or the day after. Um, you can't account for everything. Mm. During COVID, stuff that you could get on a one or two day lead, you needed three weeks to try and get hold of plaster, um, uh, dry yeah, materials. Um, Do you remember the windows we tried to get? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's um, you know the global supply chain broke down effectively. Yeah. Um, anything aluminium, steel prices shot up. Um, and factories just weren't producing anywhere near the output that they were pre-COVID. So how did people survive though through COVID? Obviously with all the materials showing up, mm. I think it was something like timber's gone up like... 40%, yeah, seventy yeah, products went up, similar. Like, how did companies survive and how did Stratstone survive trying to navigate around that obviously increase in price and increase in labour? So we were, we were quite fortunate in way of we had some long-term projects running when covid kicked off um and through my background as i was saying on the data center side of life um we did a lot of early procurement and fixed a lot of rates and a lot of bulk materials long before they were ever needed on site um early procurement's great when you've got the ability to do it and we were in a position where we was able to secure a lot of the products we needed at a price and it was sat waiting for us to call off as opposed to picking up the phone and, and trying to place orders out of thin air. So um, that is, I suppose, where good practice really paid off for us in a, in a major way at mm. the start of the pandemic. Um, that obviously can only carry you a certain way. It got to, I'd probably say, kind of Q3 going into winter 2020, going into New Year 2021. Um, it, it got more difficult um, and we had to be creative with 
product selection um, and also, you know, um, value engineering certain packages or certain, you know, material swapping, um, um, changing specs. Now, normally clients or developers would see that as you trying to save yourself money and, and downgrade the, the project. We had very open conversations with our clients as to, we want you to finish this job on time. What we don't want is the job going on hold because we can't secure materials. Are you willing to accept a slightly different product or specification or finish, but still get the job on time? Some were willing to do that and was able to uh, box a bit clever and change some products and, like I said, change some specifications and um, and and deliver on time. Others were willing to wait because they, you know, we did a few commercial fit-outs where they weren't going to be able to lease that space because everyone was on lockdown. So they said we, we would rather extend the program and, and wait for the finish that we we desire. Um, so we it, it was about open conversation. It was about being transparent. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I think people do feel foul of sometimes um, in that kind of main contractor position is telling everyone everything's fine. Yeah, no, no problems whatsoever. You you don't want to you don't want to scare the client too much. There's some issues that if you if you share them with the client, it will seem like the end of the world for them. But it's uh, Wednesday afternoon for us. Um, so you've got to be selective sometimes about the information you share. Um, but certainly during that period, there is no point trying to claim that everything is going to go as planned because it was an unforeseen. It's a once in a lifetime event. Once in a several lifetimes event, you know, um, and you've just got to put your cards on the table sometimes and admit when there's issues. And again, you know, talking about how you have an open door policy with the guys delivering the works on site, you can be honest with your clients sometimes and not try and claim that everything's perfect and not try and always shift blame onto others. They will work with you a majority of the time. They, at the end of the day, they want their job um and they they want it handed over and and you know they've got the same concerns and stresses a lot of the time even more so as the end user than than you do as the main contractor Mm. um so it's about just having that dialogue um and like i said not trying to paper over cracks if you've got an issue best way is to get out on the table be honest um and come up with a solution and I think a lot of the time most clients will work with you on that. But it's a general life role though as well mm. isn't it? Just yeah. more rather than sort of trying to fluff your way through things. Worst, worst thing you can do is if you have got an issue you lie and bullshit you don't solve the problem. It's okay if you solve the problem because no one's none the wiser. Mm. If you don't solve the problem uh, and it becomes apparent and it's a showstopper that client isn't going to work with you at that point. Because you've lied to them, you've, you've tried to bullshit them, and they're just going to think, well, any solution you come up with is more is more bullshit. Um, so yeah. sometimes it is, you know, you have just got to go, look, we've messed up, or so-and-so's messed up. This is the plan we're putting in place to solve it. Um, we either need your, we, we want to get your opinion, we want to get your advice, or we want you to understand what the solution is that we're trying to, um, you know, um, counteract it with Mm. Um, and again 
because otherwise, like you said, you try and hide it away, it eventually comes out, and they go, well, if you're hiding something that big, what else are you trying to hide down the line? Yeah. And then, and then suspi- and, and that's where you start butting heads. That's where the suspicions arise, um, and they lose confidence in what you're saying. They lose confidence in your statements. So. Mm. I've always said as well, it's, it's a very fine line between being a genius and a con artist. Mm. And that's sort of going on that same thing. If you solved that problem about anyone knowing, you kind of lied about it, got mm. away with it, you're a genius. Mm. You haven't, you're a con artist because you're not delivering what you said. Mm. But you got way way up the risk and rewards factor and everything, haven't you? Massively. You know, it's, it's, it's like in life itself, you know, there's, we, you know, you, you tell people white lies sometimes because you want to save their headspace so you don't you don't want to upset them you don't want to piss people off that's fine so long as you've got a plan in place to make sure that they it doesn't blow up in your face and, and it's still the problem that it was before you didn't share it with someone you know mm. um and confidence is a, is a massive thing in construction um and as lo- as soon as the client team starts losing confidence in your ability to deliver that's when they start getting more involved in delivery. Um, they start trying to get involved in decision making uh, where they normally wouldn't have to or shouldn't have to. Um, so you've got to, it's, if you're going to talk the talk, you've got to walk the walk a little bit. Mm. Um, and as I said, you know, sometimes the best course of action is just honesty. Um, and people, funnily enough, that, that doesn't degrade confidence sometimes, that builds confidence. Um, people can see you're being honest about something, they're more willing to work with you. Um, and also they know they haven't got, they, they're not waking up in the middle of the night, like I said earlier, worrying, well, if, if that's an issue, what else is and what else aren't they telling me? Mm. Um, and, and unfortunately that can lead to the job taking longer because they want to pour through every single detail of the job, um, or it ends up costing everyone a lot more money because well, they don't want you to do that now. They want to do this. They want to get involved in that. So. And also, if you, if you as a client, I've, I've had it with my clients and, and guys who've worked for me as well. If they do one, if they do cut corners quite a lot, but then there's one thing that's quite big. If the client sees that one thing that's quite big, they'll pick up everything else. And I always say to, to the guys on site, if you do one thing wrong, Everything will be scrutinised. Mm. But if you make sure that the, every all of the things are done right, and you might cut a corner here and there, everyone does. Sometimes it's better to cut a corner than, than do it the right way and way, save money, save time, might even look better. Mm. But as soon as you get picked up on that one thing, everything gets picked up. So don't be surprised if that one thing, what you was half worried about being picked up, then highlights all the cracks what you've left behind you as yeah. well. Yeah. So that's right. It's kind of like. Just do do what you've got to do to the best of your ability and not leave anything to the client to be able to turn around and say, well, if you've done that wrong, I'm going to be on site every day now to pick up everything else we've done wrong because it just makes it worse for everybody else. Yeah, and exactly that. It just it draws out the process. Um, and like I said, then one, um, the, the job you're working on becomes like grinding teeth and two, you're probably not going to get that next job. No. Um, People can work with mistakes. People can't work with lies, effectively. Um, mm. And again, I've I learned that for experience. There's there's stuff um, in my career that you try and 
you think, oh, I'll bury that and I hope no one ever finds it. Sunlight's the biggest disinfectant. Someone is always going to, it's always going to come to light at the end of the day. So you're better off either having a plan in place or, like I said, just being honest in the first instance. And um, you can work around it. What you can't do is bury stuff and, and just hope that it goes away. It's a, it's a, it's a recipe for disaster. That. And and you know what I also have always found as well is if I know I've not done something mm. and I need to do it and I put it off, put it off, put it off. I'll forget about it. But then when you remember that you haven't done that, the client also remembers. Yeah. So if you've remembered you haven't done that, the client, I'll guarantee will email with it, me within two days mm. of me thinking, oh, I didn't do that, I've got to do that. Mm. So I've always found that if, if there's something we'll have ever put off for any reason, just busyness or anything like that, the second you think of it, make sure it gets done. It will come back Because around, the yeah. client always remembers it. Yeah. And will always email you within two days of, of you actually thinking, I've got to do that. Yeah. And if they've got to chase you two, three, four times, it only looks bad on you. Yeah. They don't care that you're busy. They don't care what else you've got going on or your personal life or no, unfortunately, any other jobs. Yeah, unfortunately, busy is an excuse um, a lot of the time. Um, Clients want to feel special. Yeah. So yeah. you've got to make them feel special. If you're, if you're not getting back to them, mm. they don't feel special. And then what I do see a lot of the time or what I have seen a lot of the time is... Um, kind of minimising client concerns because as I think I said earlier what might seem as something simple to us and we know what the solution is could be a big issue for the client Mm. Um, and you've got to put your arm around them sometimes and be like look we're solving it this is what we're doing this is the plan it's not going to be a problem Um, and trying to minimise it sometimes the worst thing you can do is the client comes to you with a concern and you downplay oh don't worry about like that's not that's not where we should be looking at the moment, you know, um, or that's not what we should be focusing on. At the end of the day, it's their money, it's their project, it's, they're going to be the ones either living in it or leasing it or selling it. Every concern they have, um, you've, got to, you've got to give them time and a platform to, to air it. Um, that doesn't mean you've got to jump and snap into action if they say there's an issue here or an issue there, but you have got to give them time to voice their concerns and then mediate and say, look, you know, this is what we're doing or we're not quite ready to hand it over yet or um, we appreciate you bringing this to our attention. However, we're already aware of it. Um, but you, 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 have, you can't just turn around and go, oh, don't worry about that. You don't know what you're talking about. Leave it to us. We're the professionals because you could be the biggest professional in the world. You're still going to mess up at some point. And that statement will get thrown back in your face. I've seen it firsthand. Mm. You told me you was a professional. So how on earth has this happened on your watch? And unfortunately, you kind of backed yourself up against the wall at that point. Because you're the one who's gone out there and said, we're the professionals. Leave it to us. That can blow up in your face very quickly. I always say to clients, don't judge against corners or anything. But don't judge me on when jobs go well judge me on how we react when a job doesn't go well. Yeah. Because essentially, jobs, no job's always going to go perfect. You're going to get some jobs where uh, you're pulling your air out because you can't believe how bad they've gone. Yeah. But it's how you react to to the problem, mm. how you solve that problem yeah. is is what testament to you and the company and the team you've got around you, yeah. really. Yeah, yeah. It's like you said, you know, that isn't when things, when everything goes swimmingly, no one's at their comfort zone. And you do see kind of, you 
do see the mark of people when things are going wrong. Mm. Um, it's usually when you can identify leaders within a team when things aren't going to plan because they're the ones who say, I'm going to grab hold of that, I'm going to make something happen, I'm going to put it right. Or they'll see that people are starting to flap, they'll see that people are starting to panic and they're the ones that steady the ship. Mm. And more often than not, it's not the senior team members, it's individuals within the team. Um, there's difference, isn't there, between like a boss and a leader. And I say I see that all the time. You know, I've worked in organisations where the most senior person in the team isn't the leader of that group. Mm. They're just there in name only, you know, yeah. or, or they're there in title only. It's actually a guy a couple of runs down. You take that linchpin out of the process. They'll uh, get where you got to look after people. People will skirt over them or won't you know, give them that promotion or pay rise or bonus, whatever it may be, or even just a pat on the back or recognition for work well done, they'll disappear and the organisation falters. Mm. And then suddenly that person who's at the top of the pile who's been taking credit for all the jobs going well gets exposed in a major way um, because everyone suddenly realises, well, the, the person who's making the clock tick mm. was that guy a couple of, like I said, runs down and now he's gone, we're running into issues. So... You've got to be. You, you've got to have your finger on the pulse with your team and and the structure. Um, otherwise, as I said, you know, you end up self-aggrandizing, and everyone, you, you know, again, seeing it, senior senior managers start thinking, I can do nothing wrong. Everything I touch turns to gold, and they forget to reward the people underneath them who are actually delivering, and they're taking the credit for. Yeah. Um, so you've got to, you have got to share success. Um, otherwise, so, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, as a leader yourself, how do you how do you see them people who are sort of say like two, three underneath you, mm. who are doing a good job? Mm. Like, do you do you see them doing it, and you see other people taking the credit, or do you not notice them as well? Because I've always said. Like cream always rises to the top. Mm. So even though other people might be taking somebody's credit, people around who matter do notice in the end. But do you do you think that is the case? Or I think I think you've got to spend time with the uh, you have got to spend time with your team, um, and it is just with the amount of stuff that we have to process and the amount of information you have to churn through during the week. It, I would love nothing better than to put my headphones in, lock myself into a room and just sit there and do that work. But that's great for you, but not great for the team, not great for the project. Um, you've got to make yourself available to kind of everyone within the team. Within reason, you can't spend all week just mm. listening and speaking to people uh, in, in the office because otherwise you wouldn't get anything done, you know. Um, but you have, again, as I said kind of earlier, what I prefer doing is rather than getting reports off someone about the six people, I'd rather just spend 15 minutes having a chat with those guys, hearing the concerns, seeing where the issues are, you know, what's stopping them from doing what they, they need to do. Sometimes it's, oh, this hasn't been paid or, you know, this account um, is on stop. And it's it's just because, it's not because there's an issue, it's because... Sometimes you've just got to interject and prioritise certain things. Um, uh, or they'll say, you know, a process that you've put in place is actually making their life harder um, than it is easier. And again, that's where you've got to be a bit reflective and go, 
well, it seemed like a good idea when I put it into place, but if it's making people's lives harder, then it's obviously not that good. It, on the tin, it sounds great. And, you know, when you're selling it um, up the line, it sounds fantastic. Oh, you know, we do this and it's a 10-point plan and blah, blah, blah. Um, but if it's making people's lives harder and they're just circumventing it and finding their own shortcuts, make that shortcut the process. Mm. Because that's the quickest way to do the job and it's still achieving the same um, outcome. Uh, so you've got a you you can't be too proud in terms of what you put in place, and um, you can't just listen to lip service. You've got to go and no matter whether you're in charge of a hundred people or ten people, you've always still got to do that leg work and go and speak to the people actually doing the work. Because again, it's very easy. All all it takes is one person trying to cover their backside telling you everything's nice and rosy and if you just take that at face value and don't actually go and um, find out for yourself then you sat on a house of cards and it will fall in and, and you've only got yourself to blame because you thought oh I'll just rely on the bloke on a Friday you know the, the, the manager underneath me on Friday afternoon telling me it's all going fantastically mm. um, so yeah you have you've got to go out and see who are the doers and you know um, there'll be some people who you never want to promote or take out their role because they're integral to the operation. Sometimes you can be too good at a job where you can't, you're not going to, you can't unfortunately progress because without you, that whole operation starts to, to force us. So um, with that though, it, you know, if someone's doing a great job, it doesn't always naturally mean that they've got to be promoted. They might be happy with that position. You know, I've had it before with site managers where I've said, I think we should put you into a project manager role. And I've turned around and said, I don't want to be a project manager. I'm happy as a site. That's where I do my best work. Um, that's where you'll get the most out of me. So it's, recognition isn't always promotion. Sometimes it's, like I said, a bonus or um, it's taking the team out, you know, celebrating success. Um, ticking off milestones is a big one as well. Construction can feel quite... A long slog especially on long programs um, and you find that things become very monotonous um, and thing you know the morale starts to break down and sometimes you know we've completed the frame or you know some project milestones going out and celebrating that and you know saying to everyone we've done 10,000 hours without injury we should reward ourselves for that you know we should recognize that's that is really good work that's really strong work and um, sometimes, you know, again, construction, people only want to talk about the money that's been made and the dates that have been hit. Well, sometimes, you know, that's only been achievable by people working safely and putting, making sure site's a good place to be um, and people are happy to come work there. So you've got to, you've got to recognise all facets of the team, not just who's making the money and who's pushing the job to completion. Mm. Um, yeah. So what do you see is like the the biggest challenges within the industry then? Um, it is, I think it fundamentally boils down to people. Mm. And I, still, I, I think you've got to have a robust supply chain. Um, it's just going to sound like a tick box exercise, unfortunately, um, because a lot of it is, it's not generic, but it, it's applicable to every part of construction. You've got to have a team that you can rely on. You've got to have that uh, ability to have difficult conversations with a supply chain that aren't going to walk off the job because 
you're asking over and above from them um, or you're asking them to go back and get something done. Um, the industry, you are going to clash heads. You are going to piss people off sometimes. They are going to piss you off sometimes. But you've got to be able to dust yourself off, not take it too personally, carry on and get the job done. So having a, you know, Stratstone, we're quite fortunate. We've got a supply chain that we've worked with really since conception. Um, and loyalty does pay off sometimes. Um, you know, it's very easy to go out to the market, find another company that can do it for a fraction of the price than the company you've worked with for five years. But they'll probably do a fifth of the work to a fifth of the quality. Yeah. Um, but it takes five times as long. Um, so sometimes, you know, rewarding loyalty, sticking with teams, that shared experience, you know, if you've done a job, three or four jobs with a, the same contractor, you know how each other operates. You know that there's a there's going to be a level of respect there. You know that you can have that open dialogue. Um, so that goes a long way to ensuring delivery. Um, again, you might not make the extra couple of percent you could if you went somewhere else, but you also de-risk finishing. Mm. Um, you know they will turn up. Again, you know each other on a personal level, hopefully, and they're not going to leave you in the lurch. Whereas you know, cost cutting and jumping to the cheapest, that doesn't happen because you are just a paycheck to them. Um, so when you pay, pay not to get monkeys. Yeah, that's it. Um, so you know that that helps a lot. Um, and I think honest appraisals of the the task at hand, people will lie not lie necessarily but people will not be honest as to the challenges involved in the project because they don't want they they would rather deal with the issue later than now whereas i'm a big pull the plaster off in one go yeah there's going to be a problem let's deal with it now um rather than when we're trying to hand over at the end of the job so yeah it's about having a robust team um having a team that you can rely on internally and with the supply chain um, and trying to build some honesty amongst all the parties. So we touched on this earlier, but obviously this podcast is all about sort of like mindset and success mm. and, and how people can perform at a higher level and continue performing at a higher level. So if you had to look outside in, what, and again, you're modest, so you'll probably sort of not see what you're doing as a success or achievement, mm. but if you look outside in, how would you say you've achieved your success? Like, what what's been the the foundation of, of sort of you being able to get to where you are now? Yeah, um, it's uh, I think it's probably a couple of things. Um, I have never never had any concern about speaking to anyone from any walk of life. Um, I've never been. Uh, scared to put my hand up or raise concern. Is that um, from your parents? Yeah, I think, you know, um, I'm the youngest of three and by a margin, you know, by a considerable margin, I think my, I've got a brother and a sister, my sister being the eldest, um, I think there's an eight-year gap between my brother and my sister. Um, so I feel like as a kid, I had to fight my corner anyway to be heard around the dinner table, you know. Um, I had to grow up quite quickly um, I matured. Uh, I'm quite an immature person, but I can I, I can have maturity at times as well. And I've never had an issue in regards to 
arguing with a with an older person just on the basis that they're older so i, I, I should shut up so um i think that's helped a lot never really having concern about who i'm speaking to again if i've got if i've got conviction in what i'm saying and i believe that i'm right and i believe that i'm contributing or, or bringing something to the table i don't care whether you're a multi-millionaire or you've been doing it 40 years or you've done six other projects like this before it does does not phase me and it's never phased me um uh, i think i said earlier i've always had like a natural distrust of unearned authority um so i hate when people you know the justification for listening to someone is well they're the teacher mm. or they're they're in charge it's you know um, it's probably a good job i didn't join the army because I think I would have been kicked out within about two weeks because I've just never, I've, it's never interested me. I've never understood the appeal to authority. Respect, sir. Yeah, I, I'm a big believer in that. You know, I, I, I'll never disrespect someone on, from the offset, but a level of respect, as you said, is earned. It's not, it's not a given. Um, and again, I think you can quickly pinpoint weak links in a team as the ones who are reliant on their job title or are reliant on their position within the company. If that's all you've got to bring to a conversation, that says to me that your your argument isn't very watertight. That is just, again, you you trying to appeal to a, to a senior position or you've been doing it longer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot to be said about, you know, X amount of years experience doing so-and-so. And again, you, I'll always listen to someone. I, I don't think I've, I've never gone into... A conversation or a room thinking I'm the smartest person in there or um, that it's my way or the highway but um, turning around to me and saying I've done this job for 20 years who's to say you've not been doing it badly for 20 years um, and as with society and, and life in general there's innovations that come along that mean that you can do things quicker and faster and cheaper and better mm-hmm. um, so I never want to be in a position where I, I will probably retire the day I turn around to someone and say, well, I've been doing this 30 years, mate. Because that's not an argument. That's a statement. But it's mm. not. It's not an argument. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, certainly um, having the confidence to challenge, um, not relying on arbitrary authority, um, and wanting to learn as much as... I've never been scared of asking stupid questions. I think that's probably something that has helped is I don't really have that filter um, between what I think and, and what I say sometimes. So if I don't know how something's done on a project or, or when someone's doing something on site, I have no inhibitions in going up and asking, well, why are you doing it that way? How does that work? How does that get joined to that? And how does it all work once it's installed? You know? Do you feel some people, though, find that intimidating you asking because i i i'm like you i always ask if i don't know i always ask so if something if they're doing something a certain way yeah and i've never seen that or i don't know or i don't understand it say so why are you doing it that way i feel like people get a little bit like their back up i like, think yeah i think it, unfortunately i think it's quite sad actually i think it highlights the levels of suspicion and um kind of cutthroatness of the industry mm. which is as you said kind of i'm asking from a position of naivety curiosity. Yeah, yeah and curiosity whereas other people will ask to then try and either make you look like a like a 
oh, you're doing it like that? Oh, you should be doing it like this. Or mm. um, they will use that as ammo in a conversation two weeks down the line. Well, I saw your blokes doing this on such and such a date. And again, I think it's unfair, you know, that's a conversation um, that you can have between kind of the senior managers or kind of um, owner of the subcontractor and yourself. Um, but why you would try and make that the installers or tradesmen issue, I've, I've never understood it. Mm. Um, yeah, you've got to, you, uh, the day you stop asking questions is almost the day that you convince yourself that you're uh, smart enough and got enough experience that you don't need to ask him and that's a dangerous place to be yeah if you if you walk into a room and think you're the smartest in the room you're, you're not no never, so never, you're never, not never. The smartest. so if you had to give somebody advice who wanted to come into this industry do mm. what you've done had the experiences what you've done what advice would you give um don't queue up for the plumbers course no um <laughs> the advice genuinely i think the advice i'd probably give is um you've got to be willing to you've got to be willing to learn every day um you can't take position for granted um arrogance is kind of the <laughs> arrogance is the death knell to a career um i've seen plenty of really competent really intelligent qs's um at 22 23 who think they're the bollocks and can set the world on fire um, and five years later they've not risen above kind of sites of a position because they've made enemies of everyone they've tried to turn over subcontractors uh, they've tried to turn over suppliers for a quick pat on the back for a quick pat on the head well done those people won't come and work for you again mm. those people will find a way to turn you over at some point um, you've got to be amicable. You've got to be able to work with anyone from any background. Um, and yeah, you, every day has got to be a school day. Um, you can't, you can't be a master of everything. You've got to, you've got to know what you're good at and focus in on what you're good at and, and have the humility to admit that there's some stuff you're not good at, um, or that aren't your kind of strong points. Um, you know, there's there's things that I would have, if I I would have loved to, you know, understand more on the engineering side of things, civil engineering and structural engineering. I find it fascinating. I, I find people who kind of do that as a profession, I'm kind of in awe sometimes because right. people think, you know, um, commercial side of it is maths. I do a very, uh, I do a very uh, basic form of maths compared to guys like that you know structural loadings and all the rest of it so um you've got to be you've got to be able to concede to specialists in the room sometimes um and not let arrogance kind of seep in and and convince yourself that you can answer any question mm. um i will or if i'm not in a position to answer a question i'll always defer to an expert or a specialist because again it's it's a fool's errand to um convince yourself that you, you can solve every problem. So if you didn't see the queue for the plumbers too long, like if, if the, the plumbers queue wasn't too long and, and went on to site management course, do you think you'd still be a plumber now? Or do you think you'd be sort of still where you are now? No, I, I, uh, I do think I would have naturally, I've, I've, I, again, this probably ties back to the, 
I'm probably too lazy to be a plumber. I've got a lot of admiration for guys who work on the tools. I've got a lot of admiration for tradesmen. They do some ungodly hours. Um, and look, it's the old stereotype builder, you know, turns up, drinks 10 mugs of tea, eats a pack of biscuits, goes over at three o'clock. That's not the experience that I've ever had in this industry. There are some individuals who do that. They don't stay in work for very long. From what, um, from what I've seen, I, I am, I am, I say it with all sincerity, tradesmen and white van men and women are the backbone of this country. This country would cease to operate if it weren't for the people keeping the lights on and the heat on and buildings going up. It is, you know, self-employed guys, self-employed tradesmen, small business owners is what keeps this country going. Mm. And they do not get anywhere near the amount of respect or recognition um, that they deserve. Uh, you know, during COVID, I thought it was fantastic that the NHS workers got the amount of recognition that they got. What no one ever failed to mention and what's never been given any recognition is the construction industry and those small business owners that I mentioned worked throughout the pandemic. I was on sites where everything else was shut down, but tradesmen and subcontractors and suppliers and lorry drivers and whatever you want to name as part of that process were still working day in, day out, seven days a week, a lot of the time, 10, 12 hour days. That kept the economy going. Mm. There's no two ways about it. That kept the economy churning um, and kept things moving. Um, so um, I do see that I, I am a big, I'm a big proponent and a kind of a big cheerleader for, as I said, um, kind of tradesmen and and guys um, in manual professions um, because I don't think they get anywhere near the amount of um, recognition that they deserve and kind of tying back to your question i i probably haven't got the grit to do that i know um you know people we know i they will work six seven days a week they will work during the day they will work of an evening they will do night shifts they will do weekends they will not see their family very much you know a few hours of a night or in between shifts or or, or the rest of it so um I probably wouldn't have had the uh, the grit and the gumption to actually to, to go all the way with that. So I like to think I would have almost always kind of ended back up what I'm doing now. Mm. Um, I do like kind of the role and um, industry. I mean, because as I said, you know, it's nice being in the office sometimes. It's also nice getting out onto sites. It's nice speaking to... I love being able to speak to people from all walks of life. It's, it's one of the big selling points. Like I said, some days the job does feel arduous. It does feel like pulling teeth. But there's other days where you come across, you know, individuals and people that, you know, you laugh about for years to come. You talk to people and you go, I used to work with this bloke who did X or Y. Um, and just the, the, the variety of personalities you speak to, I love it. Um, so I think I would have always naturally been drawn back to whether I would have been a QS I don't know I might have been a site manager or I don't uh, again I don't think I've necessarily got the uh, skill set to be an architect or an engineer but I think I would have always been drawn back into kind of the construction management or or commercial management so so again I said just humble word you say about not being able to sort of put the shift in but uh, you 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 work late Mm. like you work 
long hours. You work what's like not just required by sort of like the company kind of thing, but what's required by the job. So yeah. I think you're doing something. I, I suppose. Yeah, I don't know. I suppose maybe it's maybe it is a little bit. Yeah, maybe I don't know. I just always see manual was more difficult. But then you know when I when I do when I've done manual stuff before, there is something quite nice about. Uh, and I don't mean this in it, but sometimes you can switch off a little bit and just focus on the task at hand. You haven't got to think about the big picture stuff. Mm. There's something to be said about that. Um, yeah, look, certainly I think in the role I'm in, um, there's peaks and troughs. You know, starts of projects and ends of projects are you do the hours you need to do to get the job done or started. Um, there can be, you know, there can be days where you're you know, you can get away with a half day or you can get over the golf course in an afternoon. Um, but, um, yeah, look, I think I think it's easy to recognise hard work in others than it is sometimes yourself. Mm. Um, but I'm not, yeah, I'm not too humble. Let's not... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not too humble. But, um, yeah, look, it's, uh, it's, it's needs must sometimes and certainly working for... Um, Stratstone, you can't, you know, I've worked in other organisations where there's a few thousand people who work for the company and people do go hiding and, and, and can get away with murder. Um, where we are, uh, uh, you know, where we started in 2015 and, and the size of the organisation we are, unfortunately, sometimes it's just a case if you're not there to do it, it doesn't get done and yeah, um, sure. you've just got to, you've got to kind of chew your way through it, so... So, I want to start wrapping this up. Mm -hmm. What are your three favourite films? Three favourite films, right. I'm sure I answered this in the unaired podcast and I'm trying to think what I said. Um, I've got to put, I think just because I saw it at such a young age, it's kind of stuck in the mind. But Saving Private Ryan is one that um, kind of always sticks in the mind. Um, I, can, I could watch that. I, I must have seen that over a hundred times, I think, in uh, in the last 10 years great film um what else uh i don't want to be too cliche and say probably said godfather 2 has got to be up there as well but again um two over one yeah i just think it's de niro as the as the young corleone i think that's what i, th I think that's what always gets me it's like where he goes back to sicily i i, I love those scenes mm. so um i think that's because part probably that's where I love imagining that's where I end up retiring someday. Somewhere like that. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's there or again, I would be I would be screwed because I don't speak a lick of Italian um, and a pasty English guy kind of asking for a loaf of bread at the side of a road. I think I'd probably be strung up on the nearest tree within about two weeks. But, um, um, but yeah, that that's the that's the idea. The price. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I can I can get fucking a sticker sticker French stick down the road fifty cents cheaper. But um, that and uh, let's throw a comedy in there. What um, oh, do I really like? See, this is you've caught me out here. I'm going to sound really basic now when this comes out. Um, I thought you'd have uh, been prepared for this question. I know. I asked everyone this question and I asked you before as well. I know. This is it. <laughs> I've, I've, I've drawn a blank. I am a bit of a filmophile as well. When I lived, when I did live away, obviously I did spend a lot of time just watching movies and series and stuff like that. Mm. So. Uh, this should be on the tip of my tongue. Um, I go and put a series in there if you want to put a series in there. No, because it's going to be The Sopranos. Then, then it's, <laughs> then it's two gangster, two gangster um, picks. So, 
Um, I will go for um, Blazing Saddles. I'm going to go Never for. Seen it. Um, I will. I'll give you a copy. I'll give oh. you a copy. Um, great movie. Um, not. Uh, yeah, Gene Wilder. I think it is. Yeah. Nice. Um, whether it would, pro- I don't think you could probably watch it nowadays. It'd probably be cancelled because there's a oh. few, um, few not so politically correct bits in there. But, Back um, in the good old days, you could say what the you good want. old. I wasn't even born, and yeah, but, yeah <laughs> the good old days. Yeah. Rich, thanks for your time. No pleasure, thanks mate. Pleasure. On. Thanks for having us in.